Today, you guys that are tactically minded, you gun guys, you hunters, uh, all of that stuff, you're going to have your episode today, because we're going to talk about rifles, shotguns, and handguns as they pertain to modern survival, and I'm going to try to go through this in a way that will be entertaining and enjoyable for the experienced person with firearms, but educational, informational, and easy to understand and grasp for the person that's new to firearms or maybe has had very limited or even no experience with firearms. I want to demystify some things. I want to make some terminology easier to understand. I've done this before. I'm going to take a little bit different of an angle with it today. I hope it works out well for everybody, and uh, I hope everybody enjoys it because it's a subject that I don't talk about a lot, but why don't I talk about it? Because there's so many great podcasts about firearms and guns and rifle reviews and pistols and stuff like that, and Firearms are a very important part of modern survival philosophy, modern survival living, modern survivalism, both from a standpoint of being able to procure food in certain situations and provide defense in certain situations. The key is really understanding the way that the different attributes of each firearm interplay with each other and the advantages and disadvantages inherent to different calibers, gauges, platforms, actions, and understanding that there is no perfect gun, there is no perfect firearm, there is no perfect solution. For everything that I gain by choosing and making one choice, I'm giving up something that could be uh, compensated for by making another choice, and it's all checks and balances. We're going to kind of talk about that today. Before we do that, though, um, we're going to do some housekeeping today, and I'm going to start out with, instead of the sponsors, running the contest for you. And I'm not going to take a lot of responses today. I'm only going to take 30 responses to play the contest today to win the seats to dirt time. You have to be a YouTube subscriber, and you have to be willing to go to dirt time in Wyoming. Please do not play this contest today unless you are going to go to Wyoming in June. Please, because you're going to take a space that could go to somebody else, one last out for you, if you realize you can't go, tell me before it comes and we'll give your seat to somebody else. So if you're a little bit iffy because, like, something might happen, fine. But if you know you can't go, don't play today, please. All right? Dirt Time is an amazing experience. I would love to see you there. If you don't win, I would act and buy yourself a ticket to go tomorrow if you don't win today. I mean, it's, it's that important because when they run... Uh, they might even be out already. I don't know. I might be giving away the last seats available today. I'm not even sure. All right? So, with that said, here's how you play today. One, you must be a YouTube subscriber to the survivalpodcast.com. Send me an email. Do not use my contact form. I will throw out your entry. If you use my contact form, send email only. In the subject line, the code word, dirt time, one word, dirt time, one word, space, Wyoming, dirt time, Wyoming. That is the code word today. I will give away, in the body of the email, place your YouTube username so I can verify you're my subscriber. 
I will give away a free trip to Dirt Time 2010 in Wyoming today to the first email that I receive, the 10th email that I receive, and the 30th email that I receive. Don't think you can't win because you listen later in the day. Don't think that because you can win. There's not going to be that many people that commit to going and are YouTube subscribers and tuned in today and play. So there you go. The big contest out of the way. Now let's look at our sponsor. Sponsor of the day, number one today, Common Sense Prep. New sponsor, great guy, put together a great site, went out, innovated, cut some really good deals, has some cool stuff. Check out the H2O Hog Water Harvesting System. I'm really impressed with what this company has done so quickly as a brand new company, and I'm really impressed with the product offering they have. It's commonsenseprep.com. You can find their banner, like the banners of all of our sponsors, at um, the uh, main page, survivalpodcast.com. Sponsor of the day number two today, Western Botanicals. Absolutely the highest quality and best selection of herbals available anywhere in the country. It's amazing how much they actually offer, not just from preparations, but from whole herbs and education on how to use them. I really want you to check out Western Botanicals. Remember, if you're a member of the Members Brigade, all you have to do is phone them up and give them this discount code that's in your Members Brigade area. $50 a year there for preferred membership for a 25% discount, you get it free. So make sure if you're buying from Western Botanicals and you're a Members Brigade member, you're taking advantage of that benefit. Moving on from there, I want to remind you today to get in touch with us uh, through all of our social media outlets, not just YouTube, Facebook, um, Twitter. You can follow us on Twitter. Whatever ones you use, we're probably on. Check out our gear ship and get gear, check out the Survival Podcast Gear Shop. Shirts, hats, all that jazz, and check out our forum. Please join us on the forum. Last but not least, before I go into today's main subject, um, consider joining the Members Brigade. I just gave you one great reason why. I could give you a whole bunch of great, of great reasons why. If you didn't take advantage of a recent discount, it's not coming back anytime soon. It's still an outstanding value. It, it has What it does for you is it lets you support our show at 20 cents an episode. So when you're done listening, if you think that was worth two dimes, consider joining. Discounts to 15 supporting vendors now. Free ebooks, members-only videos, the lot, it's out there, it's available for you. Five bucks a month, $50 a year. I keep flirting with this idea. If you want to do a monthly, I do it soon. I think I'm going to raise the price to six bucks uh, a month for monthly. Not for existing members, only for new ones after that, because PayPal just kills you with fees on a $5 purchase. Okay, what I want to do today is I want to take a look at this, maybe from a different angle than the typical podcast or radio show or TV show about guns usually does. And what I mean by that is usually these shows review a couple different guns. They tell you which gun is the best gun for you based on whatever. And I want to start out with a statement that's kind of counterintuitive to a lot of the things that we hear about firearms from reviewers and from review-type shows. And that is, there is no perfect gun for fill-in-the-blank ever. There is no perfect gun. There is no right answer to what gun should I carry for concealed carry. There may be an answer for you. You may go out and try a variety of different pistols and shoot them and get familiar with them and determine that the best gun for you is a Glock 19, like so many people say is the answer for everybody. 
You may go out and determine that it's a, it's a good, solid 1911, 45. You may go out and determine that it's a 40 Smith & Wesson. You may go out and determine that it's a compact, five-shot um, revolver that fires 357 Magnum. You may determine that it's a, a 380. If you'll say, oh, it's underpowered. And no matter what you pick, somebody somewhere will tell you that you're wrong because of fill-in-the-blank. And even when they're right, they're still wrong. And the reason they're still wrong is whatever they choose has its own limitations, has its own problems, has its own incompetence, or not, I would say incompetence, has its own places where maybe it's not as safe as another weapon, or the weapon that's very, very safe is not as dependable. It always is systems imbalances, and it's not just concealed carry. It's a deer rifle. It's a hunting shotgun. It's a home defense shotgun. Okay? There is absolutely, 100%, no perfect answer to the question of which gun should I get for? Because there's, first of all, if there was, let's look at it this way. If there was the answer, then that's what everybody would buy. Instead of getting American Rifleman or Guns Magazine or SWAT or whatever magazine you might read every month, Outdoor Life, and seeing a different new gun on it every every month, or maybe two or three different guns, reviews of new guns, instead of seeing that, well, everybody would have the same pistol, rifle, and shotgun. The exact same, I mean, maybe even there'd be a little bit of a room for the Rebel, but 90% of the market in each each niche would be occupied by a single weapon. Now, go to your nearest gun store, sporting goods store that sells firearms, and take a look at the variety that we are blessed to have with us today and the choices that we're blessed to have with us today. That variety exists simply because there is no perfect answer to the question, which gun do I get for fill in the blank? Let's start out with just a typical thing. If we say, what is the best tactical shotgun for home defense? You might say, well, it's the new Vernelli. But it's the M4 that the Marine Corps chose because it's the most awesome, you know, best weapon, dependable. I mean, it is the weapon. Okay, great. It's $1,800. Do you have $1,800? Are you a small frame shooter? Can you shoot a 12-gauge well? Is the frame of the weapon acceptable for you? Do you have arthritis? Would some of the action on the weapon be difficult for you? As soon as we start to examine the shooter that goes with the weapon, the financial situation around the shooter, the purpose for the weapon, everything changes. So maybe the perfect shotgun for an individual shooter for home defense is a nice, simple 20-gauge Remington 870 pump that he can buy used for $200. Because that's better than dreaming about the Brunelli. Look at concealed carry. Everybody says carry a Glock 19. You're a lady. You weigh about 100 pounds. The way you dress on a daily basis requires you to wear tighter clothing than most people do because of your job or whatever reason, the environment you live in. I don't know. You may decide that you're more comfortable carrying a much smaller frame weapon. It may be limited in power, but it may fit you for a carry weapon better day to day. You're a guy that wants to go hunting ducks. Everybody tells you to get the Remington 1187 special purpose waterfowl gun. Do you have the money? How often are you going to hunt ducks? 
What is it really bias? No matter what we look at, there's always that exception. Please remember that as I go through things today, because it'll make some things that you think, ah, it's just wrong. Easier to comprehend, not maybe comprehend, comprehend is the wrong word. I, I sound condescending with that. I don't mean to sound condescending. It'll make things easier to accept. Because it's not about, is it right for you? It's, is it right for everybody? And everything you choose will have an up and down. And nothing could be more true of that than things like actions. So let's start looking at, if I was going to say, if you tell me and said, I have no guns at all. I need a general purpose gun to keep around the house for defense. I might need it to shoot a varmint. I might need it in a survival situation to feed myself or defend myself. I have nothing. What should I buy? I'd say you probably should start out with a shotgun. And I'm always a toss-up between that and the 22. But if you're not a guy that's going to go out in the woods regularly, and if you don't have any guns and you don't know the answer to this question for yourself, you're not that guy. Then you're going to be close to home, and all the advantages that we can talk about for the 22 with light ammo, carrying more ammo, all that jazz, go out the window. Because if you can stay home or travel short distances and come back to a base often, or you're going to be with a vehicle, or anything like that, then the added power and flexibility of the shotgun starts to take over. But let's start looking at what are our choices when we look at buying a shotgun. The most basic shotgun you can buy is a break-action single-shot shotgun. Drop the tube, in goes the shell, lock her up, aim and fire, boom, do it again. Inherently safe, inherently simple, easy to use, lightweight, limitations. One shot. Reload. One shot, reload. But for a lot of people, it's a very sensible first purchase. Brand new, NEF partner shotgun in anything from 410 up to 12 gauge, off the shelf, under 80 bucks in most sporting goods stores across America. Brand new. Used, beat up a little bit in pawn shops, 40 to $50. So, if you have $200 to spend on a gun, you can go out and maybe haggle down a pump gun for $200 and take it home and have a really nice-looking club because you spent all your money and you can't buy any shells. And I'm saying if that is all you have for now. Or you can spend 80 bucks or less on a single-shot shotgun, at least have a means of defense, and get a decent assortment of shot shells. Maybe some bird shot for small game, some slugs and bug shot for defense. And at least you have something, because something is better than nothing. Other advantages of a single-shot shotgun, I love single-shot shotguns. If I'm just going to bounce around and maybe shoot some squirrels or rabbits or something like that, just take, I'm, I'm hunting, but I'm really more just taking a walk, I love a single-shot. It's so lightweight, and yet I have all this flexibility. I can carry a little assortment of shells with me, and if I happen to, you know, depending on what's in season, you know, I can go up in shot size, down in shot size. Really easy to swap out a shell. You know, if I happen to be out at a time when maybe deer are in season and so is small game, and some states do have that overlap, hey, whatever's my target of opportunity, I can quickly adjust to. Cheap, inexpensive. I got a new shooter with me. He's trained enough to be safe, but I don't want to hand him a really nice Wingmaster 870 with nice wood on it to scratch up. I can hand him that. I can have quite a few of them since they're so inexpensive, so if I ever had to arm a group of people, I can do it. They're fun. 
There's so many of them that are beat to hell that are a lot of fun to go out and buy for 40 bucks, spend $5 on materials and make them look brand new. And if you go with NEF, New England Firearms, which Marlin now owns, you get a partner for about, I think it's like 30 to $40 a barrel. They have a barrel accessory program. You send them your receiver, and you could go out and buy a 12-gauge for 80 bucks. You could send it in and pay about 30 to $40 a barrel, have it come back with a barrel for a 410, a 20-gauge, and a 28-gauge. Oh, I think they have 16-gauges, too. So you could have one frame that uses every shotgun gauge known to man. They do make 10-gauges, but it's a different receiver, uh, uses some stretch things in the larger shell. But from 12 down to 410, you could have everything. For about 200 bucks. Throw in a couple lee loaders so you can do your own reloading. You have a massive amount of flexibility. But you still only have one shot at a time. Unless you buy certain barrels that the, the, the few manufacturers make, you also have a fixed choke. So you have a choke that's modified or full or, or what have you. Let's talk real quick about shotgun chokes before we go on. Shotgun chokes generally run from what's called cylinder bore, which is the most open choke, down to full or extra full, which is the most closed choke. All the choke is, folks, for those that don't know, is when you when you shoot that 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 uh, wad of shot, and a shotgun instead of firing, unless you're firing slugs, it usually fires multiple projectiles, a big giant handful of BBs, to make it as simple as I can. When those BBs come out at the end, depending on how tight the end of that barrel is, how small the diameter is, how constricted it is, they fly at a specific density. The more open, the less dense. The more closed, the more dense. With a fuller, tighter choke, you can shoot further. You maintain velocity and pattern density for further distances. With a more open choke, you have a quicker spread, you have less density, and you have a more opportunity to make shots at close ranges, let's say out to 20 yards. So if I'm a person that's hunting quail over dogs, I might want a 20-gauge with an improved cylinder choke, which is just a little bit tighter than cylinder bore. Or maybe skeet, which is somewhere between the two. Because I'm going to be coming up over dogs. The birds are taking off relatively close to me. They're small birds. They're delicate. They're easily damaged. Light shot. Open choke. Bigger spread. More likely to hit my target. Less likely to blow it to smithereens. If I'm shooting passing shots at ducks, and I'm shooting 35 yards out or more, I want a heavier shot size, a tighter choke. Again, just like there's no perfect gun for, there's no perfect choke pattern, um, there's no perfect shot size. Everything you try to do with a shotgun is to adjust to the situation at hand, and sometimes situations change. That's what brings us to one of uh, a really advantageous weapon to use, especially for hunting, with the shotgun as a double action, a double barrel shotgun. The beauty of a double barrel, whether it's a side-by-side configuration like Elmer Fudd walks around with, or an under-over, which is your classic kind of English shotgun. Not that only the English make them, but that is kind of a classic view of the English shotgun as the beautiful under and over. Is that each barrel can have a different choke. And I can have either a selector or two different triggers. So I might have an improved cylinder modified. That's a very common uh, choke configuration. A modified choke is not quite as tight as a full, but it's a little bit tighter than an improved cylinder. Which is a little bit tighter than a ski, which is a little bit tighter than a cylinder board. So I've got this, this flexibility, so if a bird comes up close, I can use, you know, my improved cylinder barrel. If he's further out, I can either move my selector or switch to a different trigger, and I can use my modified choke. So the, the, this, the double barrel 
even though it has less shots than the semi-automatic or the pump, compensates for that inadequacy, or that limitation is a better way to put it, by giving you selectable chokes on the fly. Because if we take a shotgun that's a pump or a semi-automatic, I'm, I have what choke I have when that bird comes up. Now I have to, as a gunner, make choices in the field. If I'm shooting a rather tight choke, because the pheasants have been getting up at 30 yards, and I step on one that jumps up 15 feet away, then I have to have discipline and let that bird get out some before I take the shot. Shotgunning is an art form all to itself. We could probably do a whole show on chokes, shot sizes, and things like that. And after doing this for this long today, I think maybe someday we will. But let me real quick give you the two other primary actions of shotguns. They're pump actions and semi-automatic. They have to generally, generally have tubular magazines that allow you to fire in sporting configuration. Three shots, that's due to legal limitations. They're usually plugged. Most of them without extended magazines allow you to have up to five rounds of the weapon. I believe the pump is the most functional utilitarian shotgun out there. It is the most affordable weapon that is as flexible as it is. It is why I recommend it often as a first shotgun. A Remington 870, a Mossberg Model 500, the Winchesters, all of them are good. None of them are junk. They're all good guns. They're all very affordable. And there's a lot of old Winchester Model 12s, a lot of 870 Remingtons, a lot of old Ithacas. There's a lot of old pump shotguns out there that are kind of beat up. You can pick up at gun shows for $150. And they're all useful weapons. And they all have certain charm to them, and they're also a great restoration project. When it comes to semi-automatic shotguns, I'm not as big of a fan. I see semi-autos sending up with people wasting a lot of money in the field by firing too quickly. I believe if you become a disciplined shooter with a pump, you can become a very effective shooter with a semi. Um, I've just never really found in the field, when shooting at game, that much of an advantage to the semi-auto. I think it does have a lot of merit if you have a dedicated shotgun for home defense. Higher rate of fire uh, and the ability to, uh, to fire multiple shots, even if one of your arms is wounded, that is a, uh, a huge advantage. Now, keeping with today's theme, I'm not saying semi-auto is the way to go for home defense. I'm giving you the information so that you can make a personal decision based on your ability, your planning, your financial capabilities, and all the other things that go with that. But I'll tell you what, a good old double barrel, single shot, or pump in the home is an intimidating and very effective home defense weapon. Let's move on and talk a little bit about rifles for a while. Let's kind of quickly go through the actions. There's a lot of similarities to shotguns. We don't need to beat them up. One of the first weapons I want to talk to you today about is what's called a boss rifle, or break, uh, break, break, open, break open single shot rifle. So these basically look like a single-shot shotgun, except when you break them open, you don't drop a shotgun shell in. You drop a rifle cartridge in. And the most famous, I mean, the Rossi makes these, and some other manufacturers do, but the most famous is, again, NEF, H&R, and they make a weapon called the Handy Rifle. And this is available from sporter models in a 22 long rifle and, and 17 rim fire and things like that, 22 Magnum. Uh, and then they go to a center fire model, which the receivers are different, and that center fire model, has anything and everything you can think up from common calibers between 22 Hornets and uh, 450 Marlin and uh, 4570 Government. 306, 270, 280, 308, 243, 223, you name it. Now, what I love about NEF break action rifles, the handy rifle, 
is that just like the shotguns, if you buy the rifle frame, you can send it in. You can get shotgun barrels for the rifle frame. You can get other rifle barrels for the rifle frame. So you might do something like go out. These guns sell for 250 bucks and down, retail new. Okay? Uh, so you might go out and buy a 3006 NEF. Bring it home. Send your receiver into the factory and order a 22 Hornet for it, a 223 barrel for it, and a 4570 barrel for it, a 12 gauge and a 20 gauge barrel for it. And for a fairly low investment, we're, we're, we're in the $600 range at this point, you have an extreme battery. You also have limitations. You put a barrel on it, it is that until you replace it. Now, it's very easy to do. One screw out, pull the forearm off, hit a lever, pop the barrel off, pop the new barrel on, one screw, put the forearm back on, and done. It's, it's almost as fast to do as I just said. But I'll do a video for you guys someday later this week uh, with one of my NDFs to show you how quick it is to swap the barrels on them, because they're cool guns. But you can't, like, in the, if you're out hunting and you've got your shotgun tube in, in your, your backpack and you've got your rifle, and all of a sudden you need a shotgun, but you don't really have time in the field to make that swap, if you're understanding me. So even though it's a very quick change-out, and even though the rifle barrels hold the, um, the scopes, so if you have all your barrels scoped, when you swap them in and out, they maintain zero, it's still basically you have to make a mechanical change to change the weapon. So they're limited that way. The other thing about them is when you look at them, you look at them and you go, man, I think must weigh like five pounds because they're short. They weigh seven, the rifles weigh seven and a half pounds. So they're not very lightweight. They're very light when you put a shotgun tube on them. But with a rifle barrel, they're equivalent weight to most rifles. The handy part comes from how short they are. Think about any rifle or shotgun other than a brake action, where you push a button and break it open. With pump, a bolt, anything like that. You have a barrel, then you have a chamber, and then you have an action. And the purpose of the action, underneath the action, is usually some sort of a magazine. Magazine feeds a new roundup. The bolt takes the, the cartridge from the action into the chamber and closes the shut on it. So the entire length of the weapon is the stock, the action, the chamber, and the barrel. So if I have a 22-inch barrel on a 3006, rifle to rifle to rifle, those rifles are very similar in overall length. And I have about a three and a half inches of that length taken up with the action. With a break action rifle, there actually isn't an action. Because the breech, which is the part that, that closes the face of the weapon, is directly against the, 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 the front of the chamber. The chambers where the bullet or cartridge, depending on how technical you want to be, is when it's fired. So that whole action piece of your pump action shotgun or your bolt action rifle goes away, and we collapse the overall length of the rifle. What that means is we can get a full-length barrel in a handy rifle, and the rifle's overall length is about the same overall length as a typical carbine or a short rifle. So we take the inherent ballistics advantage of the 3006 with a 22-inch barrel, and we put it into a weapon with the overall length of a carbine with an 18-inch barrel that would lose some of its muzzle velocity, effectiveness, and powder-burning efficiency. Cool, huh? But it has its limitations. So... Break axis single shot rifles, fun to shoot, fun to play around with, interesting to tweak. There's a great NEF uh, list that if you want to know more about these rifles, I recommend you go there, join the list, and read the archives. It's, it's unbelievable how much some people have put into these guns, and they are a lot of fun to shoot. That said, they have their limitations. Their accuracy can be very good, but out of the box, it's usually just sufficient. They're not tack drivers. I don't care who says they are. 
One or two of them may be. With a lot of tweaking, they can be. But they're not inherently accurate like a bolt action, let's say. It's a great gun. A lot of fun, especially if you want to shoot a lot of different calibers. Uh, and if you want the challenge of a single-shot rifle, you like the short action. Great gun. That's all I can say about them. Moving on, let's talk real quick about levers and pump actions. I, I kind of put them in the same category. Uh, neither one has the rate of fire of a uh, semi-auto, but they do have a much higher rate of fire, obviously, than a single shot or a bolt action. They both have their own kind of class and appeal. Uh, from a pump uh, standpoint, my favorite pump action rifle is a Remington 7, I think it's a 7600 now. It might be, I, I don't know what they call it anymore. Back in my day, and my first one was a Model 760 Game Master in 3006. I think they're just one of the most outstanding centerfire pump-action rifles, and whoever is the, whatever model has inherited that legacy uh, is still a great weapon. Uh, I always found my 760 to shoot almost as good as most bolt-actions. Almost. Not quite, but damn close. Um, very high rate of fire. Very, very popular weapon among deer hunters in the northeast woods, Pennsylvania, uh, Connecticut, uh, Maine, uh, all up through that way. Uh, the 760 was hugely popular, and specifically in 3006. That weapon's made in a lot of different calibers. Love the pump action, but it requires a certain amount of training to shoot well. For lever actions, I'm really a toss-up between the Winchesters and the Marlins, but I just have this affinity for the Marlins. Uh, the Marlin uh, 336 35 Remington is an amazing deer cartridge. Some of the new stuff, like the 308 and uh, 338 Expresses out of Marlin, are great cartridges that give you the extended range in a smaller lever action uh, package. So I, I think they're, they're all worth looking at. But again, a lever action is kind of a weapon that you become proficient with over time. It takes some training. My favorite for uh, teaching shooters to shoot well and for people to master a rifle in anything from 22 long rifle all the way up is the bolt action. There's a reason that the Winchester Model 70 and pre-64 configuration, pre-64 meaning made before 1964, was called the Rifleman's Rifle. And there's a reason it was a bolt. And, and the, to be fair to other manufacturers, people like Remington and the Model 7, they're beautiful weapons. They have a class and an appeal and a bulletproof reliability to them that's absolutely outstanding. They have an inherent accuracy advantage, and they teach you through discipline of slow, sustained fire, how to shoot like a master if you take the time to give the rifle its due. If you want to take steps for accurizing, uh, accurizing them, they're the most, uh, the, the weapon that's the easiest to do things with, like glass bedding the receiver, which is simply making the receiver more stable in the stock, and floating the barrel, which takes care of oscillation. I won't get into that today. I have a great video on it, though I'll post a link to today. Oscillation is basically just the fact that when you fire a bullet through the barrel and it twists through the barrel, the barrel actually moves, not just backwards and forwards from recoil. It actually twists, and that has different effects on how bullets fly. And again, I'll let the video explain that further, not to go into far into it today. But the, to me, the bolt action is the place to start with your rifle. It's also the hunting rifle to me. I can understand the need for follow-up shots and some of the advantages of semi-automatics, pumps, and lever actions, but if you are a competent rifleman shooting at medium to large game with a bolt action, that first shot should count every time. And if it's not counting, then you're shooting beyond your capability, you probably should not be taking the shot. And that's just fundamental reality. You have a certain amount of duty and respect to the animal. Because if you're missing, 
That means you could just as well be hitting in a non-vital area and doing incredible harm and crippling damage to the animal. As a young man, as I was coming up and learning to shoot well, my primary concern was shooting a rifle. When I started thinking about shooting my first deer, I do not want to cripple a deer. Period. I want my shot to count. I want it to take the deer down humanely and effectively, and that's my responsibility and my duty. And I that weighed heavily on me. And it's why, as a young man with a twenty-two, I was so dedicated to becoming proficient with a rifle. And I felt if I'm going to hunt, if I'm going to go out and put a bullet in an animal to take it home for food, then I have a responsibility to that animal to be as humane as possible under the circumstances. To the anti-hunters, that doesn't make a lot of sense. But to anybody that understands man's place as a predator, I think it makes a ton of sense. Rifles for defense. I'm inclined to agree with people that say the best rifle for home defense is semi-automatics and start to move into the military-style rifles. AR-15s, you know, AR carbine variations, uh, AK-47s, even the SKSs. Even things like the old M1 carbines with the uh, the 30 carbine uh, round, uh, anything that is designed to be short, easily maneuverable, uh, and designed for close quarters combat. Because when you get with, we start using rifles for home defense situations, um, you need a purpose-built weapon. Uh, now, does that mean that if I had a problem with somebody coming into my home and the closest thing to me was a bolt-action rifle, that it wouldn't be effective? It'd be damn effective. But if you do get into an exchange of fire, uh, that's what those weapons were built for. So I recommend eventually one of them in every American's home, at least one. If you have a spouse that's willing to be trained, at least two. Now, I hear a lot on forums, especially survival forums, about main battle rifles and stuff like that. I think a lot of these guys are living in some kind of a fantasy land where they think one day Red Dawn's going to happen and they're going to be the Wolverines up on the mountain fighting whatever force they dream up this time. They have what I call uh, Robin Hood Syndrome or Red Dawn Syndrome. And I don't think it's very realistic to go around constantly talking about having a main battle rifle unless you are a soldier. I don't even hear that term come out of law enforcement community. Main battle rifle, no. It's a soldier's term. And if you're a prior service soldier and some of that's carried over with you, I understand it. I'll tell you the people that I don't understand. The people that never served, were never in the military, have no idea what actually being in the military is like, run around and dressed up in camo fatigues and talk the lingo, and they think the lingo or reading a book makes them understand. It does not make you understand. It will not make you understand. Stop doing it to people that actually have served. You'll look like an idiot. You look like a fool. And, no, and I'll tell you what, the, the military poser for the actual service member is so easy to spot, it's unbelievable. It's more than just that. Most people that have been in the military, when they meet somebody else that's been in the military, in a five-minute conversation, without mentioning the military, not only do they recognize that the other person was a service member, they know what branch of service that other person was in. So if, if I can meet somebody and in five minutes go, okay, this guy was a Marine, and he was probably in the Corps somewhere in around the 80s, then when I meet you and you start talking about main battle rifles and, and throwing out some military slang, 
it's real easy for me within five minutes to go, this guy's never in the military. And it's really easy for anybody else. And I wasn't in the military for but about three years. So if I can do it, when you start you start lipping off to a guy that served 20 years, you look like a fool. So stop doing it. And more importantly for everybody else, don't live in this, this, this main battle rifle fantasy land. Don't live in this Red Dawn fantasy land where somehow you have this vision of yourself running out and getting behind things and taking shots and being shot at. First of all, you don't want that shit to ever happen if your brain's functioning normally. Soldier that trains for it doesn't really want it. There's an old saying, and there's a reason for it. No one hates war more than a soldier. Now, there's some young, bravado-driven people that before they experience it, they think they want it. Once they experience it, though, that situation changes. So for you as a modern survivalist, when you start looking about a rifle for defense, think about home defense and think about, let's say, property defense situations. And yes, you might someday end up in a situation like I've described. I'm not denying that it can happen. I'm telling you, it is the least likely scenario to end up under. You're more likely to deal with a ruly mo- an unruly mob and you might have to make a life and death situation in that situation, right? A life and death decision in that situation. But this whole, I don't know where you guys, some of you guys get this stuff. You guys, you know, I, I, I really don't. Even with the military, I want you to understand that most of the time, military people are carrying weapons to prevent conflict, not to engage in it. There are situations where our men are sent out to hunt, there are situations where our men are set, and I mean to hunt the enemy. There are situations where they get involved in crossfires and ambushes, and then those weapons serve the place to kill the enemy. That's what they're for. But in most situations, the reason you move your force around armed is a show of force so that the potential opposition just goes, yeah, I'm not going to do this. There's a hell of a lot more of them than there are of me. So even with the military, even with the military, a lot of times the being armed part is to prevent the conflict in the first place. And trust me, most soldiers, at least the same ones, hope that that works. And they don't have to get into that conflict. Alright. Moving on from there. Let's talk a little bit about handguns today. Um, to me, handguns are the one we get the, the largest amount of uh, bravado bullshit talk. You know, the people that think that, you know, there's it's, there's only like these five handguns to choose from, or only two handguns to choose from. And, and I don't have a problem with somebody saying, look, you want my advice? This is what I'm telling you to carry. But it bugs me when people say, and if you don't, you're wrong. Even people I respect and love, when they say that, it bugs me. Because you're not the other person. Handguns are, are, are very personal items. And a lot of them are purpose-built to very specific situations. The gun that the uh, the guy carries because he has to crawl down in a hole in the ground and he can't get down there with a rifle is going to be a different gun than the housewife who's small in frame and stature and maybe a little bit old and dealing with arthritic hands is going to carry. And there's nothing wrong with that. There's nothing wrong with that at all. There's a confidence issue that comes with handguns. And there's the, the first thing that we have to understand about handguns, if we're going to have any kind of a rational discussion about them at all. Unless you're a sportsman who is hunting with a handgun to increase the challenge, 
In all other instances, the reason that you carry a handgun or you use a handgun is because you can't get your hands on a rifle or a shotgun. And that is the only reason. The reason you can still carry a forty-five or a Glock or a Kimber or whatever on your back while you go to work and while you come home and while you do whatever you do every day is because it's, in, it's not appropriate and it's not functional to carry around a Remington 870 or an AK-47 slung over your back. It doesn't work in our society, and it's not very practical. It would be a large thing to be carrying around while you're playing golf. Okay? While you're at a football game. And it also would be like, okay, that guy's arm, that guy's arm, that guy's arm. So the bad guys know, I don't go here, I'm going to go there. There's a real advantage to concealed carry because bad guys don't know where the guns are. That's kind of the point. That's why I like concealed carry better than open carry. Not that I'm opposed to open carry, by the way. I'm not. But I like concealed carry being, if you have a place where open carry is okay, I want concealed carry to be okay, too. I don't want one at the exclusion of the other. And if I have to pick between the two, I'll take concealed. Because, again, the bad guy always has to worry, that guy might have a gun. That lady might have a gun. If you have open carry only, then seeing who's armed is real easy. But when it comes to making that choice, it's always because I can't have a shotgun or a rifle. Because if you're going to put me into a gunfight, first of all, I don't want to go. I don't want to be in a gunfight. I'm not going to sit here and talk nonsense. I'll take out anybody. You know, that guy that was on our, our, our blog last week. I'm a mountain bike champion, expert, tactical, whatever. I'm not that guy. I know my way around a weapon. I think I can defend myself if I have to. I know I can feed myself when I have to because I've had to when I've done it. But I don't want to be in a gunfight. But if you're going to push me into one, and you say, all right, you can have a shotgun, a rifle, or a handgun. Which one do you want? I might have to think about the situation between shotgun and rifle, but I don't want the handgun. Not if I have a choice. People shot with handguns, even when they die, often continue the fight for a while while they die. Generally speaking, hitting the torso, the upper torso, chest, neck, or head area, with a, a center uh, fire rifle, or the right load from a shotgun, when you shoot people, they be, even if they don't die immediately, they become incapacitated very, very quickly. So, the first understanding with a handgun is it is a compromise in and of itself. So when somebody says, well, uh, the 380 is underpowered compared to the 9mm. Well, the 9mm is underpowered compared to the 12-gauge shotgun. Right? The 40 Smith & Wesson is underpowered. Compared to the 45, well, the 45 is underpowered compared to the 223 on a, on a small frame AR platform. So I'm always giving something up anyway. So now what I have to do is think of the most practical situations to get into. Honestly, if you're going to force me to use a, a, a handgun in a gunfight, and there's going to be distance involved, give me a 7-inch barrel 357 Magnum with adjustable sights that's well sighted in. Because I can hit man-sized targets at 100 yards with it. And I'm probably not going to be able to pull that off with a short-barrel Glock 9mm. But the short-barrel Glock 9mm is a hell of a lot more practical for me to carry. So the same way, 
small frame revolver, 357, 38 special, may be very appropriate for many women. It may not be. I got into argue with somebody on the blog the last time I had this discussion with you guys. I said, it's not always best. But it's not always best. Sometimes it is. When a woman goes out, or a man goes out, thinks about everything that they do every day, the fact that that weapon has to be with them all the time, they're going to have to carry it, what they're most likely to have to deploy it for, they have to fit that weapon to its purpose. And the reality is that most conflicts with guns are at such short distances that a lot of the debates that you hear are irrelevant. We're talking seven feet or less. Seven feet is two steps and a half step. You can say whatever you want about side pictures. But as many people as we have killed by criminals with guns that have no experience with them, it tells us that at seven feet, it is a point-and-shoot operation. I'm not saying it's a bad thing to be able to quickly acquire a side picture and use it and put the rounds exactly where you want them. I'm saying that in the real world, when, when shit starts to fly, a lot of that stuff just doesn't happen that way. The people that have actually been shot at and had to return fire will tell you that. That a lot of the bravado goes away really, really quick. And some really brave people have quite literally pissed themselves in gunfights. Not because they're cowards, but because that's what the situation does to even the bravest people at times. Even people that do it for a living, even the professional soldier who's been in six conflicts already, six gunfire exchanges already, had rounds fly around him that did very well with it. Sometimes that same guy in a different situation has a totally different response. Because we're human beings, and we have a self-preservation instinct, which is a good thing. It's what keeps us alive. So with handguns, I think it's the, the weapon that is the most important for you to go out and shoot. And a lot of ranges have whole assortments of common handguns you can rent. And it's very inexpensive insurance to go out and shoot ten different handguns and really get the feel, the action, everything down and understood, and fire it at ranges. Of 15 yards, back up to about 7 feet in those ranges. Those are handgun ranges. And if you can consistently put bullets where they belong at those ranges, it's accurate enough for what you need it to do. And if you have to carry something that's not an ideal caliber because of your ability to shoot, or your personal physical situation, or the clothing that you're required to wear, it's better than being unarmed. Now, real quick on handguns for hunting. My belief is that for medium game and up, minimum handgun we should be talking about is a 357 Magnum. Some people do not believe the 357 Magnum handgun is sufficient for taking deer-sized game, and I would just tell them to look at the work of Elmer Keith before the invention of the 44 Magnum and his work with heavy, special, heavy 44 special loads. He took the 357 Magnum and took every big game animal in America with it. It is fine for the purpose, uh, but that said, moving up into a 41 Magnum, 44 Magnum may be a better idea. The 10 millimeter auto is actually a fairly decent hunting round for medium-sized game. Uh, handgun hunting is a specialty all in its own. And uh, I think the main appeal of handgun hunting is the additional uh, sporting uh, component of it, the additional challenge. The same reason that somebody uh, that's an archery hunter would, instead of using a compound bow, use a recurve bow. 
That's why you would use a handgun for hunting versus a rifle. I, I, I also say that I don't know, and there could be a place, and if, if there is, folks, I'd like to know this. I don't know of any place where they have a handgun season. So, like, for deer hunters, a lot of times they'll take up archery just because it extends their season. There's an archery season that, that exists at a point in time when there's not a rifle season, so you can get more hunting in. I don't know of a place anywhere, black powder does that too. Uh, you know, you use flintlock seasons or black powder seasons to extend your season. I don't know of any place where it's handgun season. Uh, if there is, again, let me know. So the handgun is purely a sporting decision for hunting. Uh, but for the outdoors, but I think that there's an entirely different spectrum of handguns to look at. You know, the 44 Magnums with shorter barrels, 357s, heavy 44 specials, uh, up into some of the compact guns with like 460s, some of the new handgun rounds. I, I think the 500 Smith is honestly crazy, folks. I really do. I think it's insane. I, I think it's like trying to, to walk around with a sledgehammer. They're fun. They're cool. I shot one. It was great. Uh, but, I, you know, making that into any kind of a you know wilderness carry weapon, unless you're in Alaska dealing with grizzly bears, uh, I think is overkill. But I think a great round for carrying in the field, not really as a hunting round, but as uh, just a defense against things that go bump in the night, uh, sidearm. It's a good old-fashioned single-action Colt 45 uh, revolver. It's a great weapon. Um, it, it, up into the, you know, especially in the lower 48, uh, especially out of grizzly territory, where maybe you have a black bear to deal with or something like that. More than sufficient power. The Ruger, uh, the Rugers can be uh, loaded a little bit hotter than conventional 45 uh, Colts. Uh, you can, and it's 45 long. Colt, okay, I know, somebody's going to write me about to get upset. When I say Colt 45, you know what I'm talking about, and it ain't the beer, right? That round is a great proven round, and it can be loaded up to uh, kind of an extra uh, heavier load. Uh, Buffalo Boar, I believe, makes some that if you don't hand load, you can go ahead and get some of those. Uh, but it's a great round. It has a lot of class. It's fun as hell to shoot, and in its, its typical loading, it's very easy to shoot, and it's a great way to start teaching a new shooter to step up into larger bore handguns with, honestly, less sharp recoil than a three fifty seven, and definitely easier to shoot than a forty one or a forty four Magnum. So uh, that kind of wraps up my thoughts on handguns from a standpoint of, of defense uh, and a standpoint of hunting and a standpoint of, let's say, a defensive weapon for the wilderness. Uh, anything's fine to me for, for the wilderness guy. The guy that's just out there, maybe not even the wilderness, but out in the, uh, in the mountains or the woods or what have you, uh, on trips in places where it's acceptable to carry in those situations. And in many places it is. Uh, whatever works for you best. No, I have no problem with you taking the, the same Glock 9mm that you carry day to day for your everyday carry, uh, and using that in that situation as well. Though I would tell you, um, if you have the financing uh, and it's 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 legal to maybe open carry when you're on that type of uh, a situation, the heavier caliber revolvers are more sufficient for some of the things that may threaten you, or maybe even some level of survival need that you may have out there. I'm much more comfortable hunting deer with a 357 than I am with a nine millimeter. Just flat, you know, good solid 150 uh, eight grain. Uh, uh, you know, Keith-style wad cutter and a three fifty seven. that's a deer hammer. That really is. So for the survival situations, uh, not even I hate the word survival situation, for the potential long-term wilderness situation you didn't plan, I'd look at stepping up to the heavier weapons. Carrying a twenty two rifle is probably an even better idea, but on some of the hiking and things like you do that, again, we carry handguns when rifles are either not available 
not legal or impractical. And some of your little hikes and stuff like that, the rifle may just be not practical. You may also be in a state that's not a real big on Second Amendment freedoms and walking around carrying a rifle outside of hunting season may not be legal, but if that state has concealed carry laws, generally you're able to carry concealed and not have to be, uh, you know, put in jail by a park ranger or something. So that kind of wraps things up. Hopefully this gave you kind of an overview. Hopefully if you are a gun guy, you still found it interesting. Understand one big thing about guns in general and anybody that does a show on guns, you're not going to agree with everything that anybody says about guns. Ever. And that doesn't mean you're wrong, and it doesn't mean they're wrong. It's highly personal. To me, as long as you're not saying something stupid. Okay, an example of something stupid. A 25 auto is sufficient for deer hunting. That would be stupid. That would be a very stupid statement, because it's factually untrue. So as long as you're not going to extremes like that, just ridiculous, that anybody can look at that understands ballistics, performance, and, and, and situations, and legality would go, that's just wrong. It's not that you're wrong. It's that your opinion is different based on your needs, desires, wants, and above all, your budget. What I want to finish up with today, though, is kind of a little bit of, about building up your firearms collection, how I think that should go. Uh, I really believe that your foundational weapons are a shotgun and a 22. Your first 22 should be a bolt action. If you buy a Ruger 10 22, I'm going to pat you on the back and say that's just fine. But if you want to press me, you'll become a better shot learning with a bolt and adding a semi-auto or a lever or a pump later on. It's, it's just my internal belief because of how many people I've talked to shoot, specifically shoot 22 rifles. Shotgun um, if you're limited on finance, go ahead and get one in single shot and get some shells for it and worry about building that later. If you've got a little bit of money, you've got some disposable income, can't go wrong with a good solid pump. Again, Remington, Mossberg, Winchester, the old Ithacas. I, I almost can't tell you a pump shotgun that's a bad gun. Some are better than others. Go out, feel the fit, the finish, the weight. If you can get, if you have a place where you can shoot sporty clays and red shotguns, rent them. Um, for sporting use, I'm a big fan of the under and over. I think it is a great hunting shotgun. Uh, you make your own decision there, but your foundation is either a pump or a semi-auto shotgun if you have the money and a good solid 22 rifle. Going from there, it's time to start looking at a handgun, especially now. When do you not look at a handgun next? If you live in a state that does not allow concealed carry, period, the end, it's over, it will not give you one, cannot carry one, that is not your next weapon. Because it is functionally useless in your situation without breaking the law. If you want to break the law, you have to do that on your own without my recommendation. Okay? So my point is, if I have a pistol at home, I could just as easily have a shotgun for defense at home. If the shotgun is superior to the pistol for home defense, I might as well stick with the shotgun for home defense. If you can carry, once you have that shotgun and that rifle, it's time to get a good handgun. Go out, shoot a lot of them. Go to a range, rent everything they have, fire some rounds through it, get some experience, get some feeling, make an informed decision, look at carry options, holsters, how you would carry the weapon, how it fits into your daily life. Make your decision on that. Get your carry license, whatever you have to do in your state to do that, get it, and begin to carry. Move on from there to a center fire rifle, and you can change these. This is my recommendation, okay? Center fire rifle, 
I really recommend the first center fire rifle be something capable of taking medium to large game. So what we're talking there is 243 up. I won't go into a rifle caliber discussion today. We'll do that in the future. I think it's a great idea for a show. Maybe I'll do that toward the end of the week, a rifle caliber discussion show. I have some really interesting thoughts on what I call the magic ballistics formula that I can share with you guys again about that. But 243 on up, you can't go wrong. 308, 3006. They're absolutely on certain levels. The two of those are perfect rounds, as perfect as we can get with our understanding that there is no perfect. But we can do, especially if we already have a shotgun at 22 and a handgun, or if we don't live in a handgun-friendly state, we don't have a handgun. That shotgun and rifle, man, we've got a lot of potential there, a lot of flexibility there. From that point forward, maybe you look at something that's more of a, a tactical weapon, an AK, an AR, what have you. If somebody said, my first rifle is going to be an AR, I'm okay. I'm not going to tell you you're wrong. I'm not that arrogant. I'm telling you it's not the choice I would make. I've given you my reasons for it. But then what I would say to you is make sure you get damn good training. And all along the way, I want you to get training. When you buy that first 22, you need to spend a lot of time out planking with it. Wherever you can find a place you can shoot with it. Uh, get my book when it comes out. I know it's taken longer than you expected it to, but we want to make sure it's done right. Um, and we'll get that book out. And we'll do the exercises and the drills with that. But go out and shoot it. Go get a box of sporting clays for a few bucks. Set it up at 20, 50, 100 yards and just break clays. Just That's the beauty of the 22. You can shoot it for next to nothing. It's dirt cheap. A penny a round. Fire a thousand rounds through it. Become confident with it. Take some training. Don't just try to learn from my book or anybody else's book. Get someone who's a competent, efficient shot that has good form. The biggest thing you'll learn from my book is what good form is. So when you see somebody without it, you don't listen to them. They don't know what the hell they're doing, even if they can break the target consistently. They really don't. There's a right, one thing I'll tell you with weapons, there is a right way to shoot different weapons for different situations. And when you see somebody with poor form, do not emulate them. But as you start getting a shotgun, go out and learn to shoot ski. Don't just see it as a tactical weapon. Understand that its most potential need that it will ever fill for you is feeding you. You need to be able to knock birds down. Go someplace, find a skeet range or a, a sporting clays range. Pay for some instruction. If you're going to buy a new gun and you already have guns, or get some instruction, get some instruction. Become proficient with what you have. As you move into that AR, look at taking, if you have the funds, go to James Jager's school. Take fighting rifle training. If you're on the other side of the country, look at Frontside Go. There's a great training program there, too. Learn to use that weapon. If you think you're going to use it for tactical use, if that's why you have it, then you better learn to use it. It's a different skill set than deer hunting. It absolutely is. When you get that center fire rifle, make sure that you reinforce the good habits that you developed with that 22. Not flinch, good trigger squeezes. Give yourself challenges. Take shots. Don't sit. Don't get a rifle and shoot it all the time on a bench at 100 yards and think you know what you're doing. You don't. Shoot it at 25 yards and shoot it at 200 yards. Shoot reactive targets. It makes it more entertaining. But as you build out your collection, don't just buy the weapons. Get out and use them and purchase training if necessary. Find a local mentor. A lot of times, find gun clubs in your area. Find somebody that really knows what they're doing. Say, I am new to guns. I'd like somebody to work with me, and I don't just want to 
put holes in paper at 100 yards. If the guy says, well, that's what I do, and that's what you need to do, fine, I find somebody else. Very politely, very nicely. That guy might be able to teach you, and you might want to work with him too. He might be able to teach you a lot about zeroing, about effective trigger squeeze, about shooting properly off the bench. A lot of people get really beat up by their guns on the bench. It doesn't have to be that way. A lot of people that can pick that 306 up, stand offhand, and shoot it all day long, when they get on the bench, it just beats the shit out of them. It doesn't have to be that way. So that guy might be able to help you, but you need more than that. Develop the skill set. Last today, why do guns and freedom go hand in hand? Why is it important that we do these things and we develop these skills? Because it is what our nation was founded on. Our nation wasn't just founded on words. It was founded on actions. And it was the actions of armed citizens that founded the nation, not just in fighting the war. It was the armed citizen before and after the revolution who used that capability to defend his property from all enemies, both foreign and domestic. There you go. And to put food on the table. Guns in America go hand in hand. Guns in the Constitution go hand in hand. I would never say there should be a law to make this happen, but I wish that every American would see as their duty as an American to own and be proficient with at least one gun. If we have 350 million Americans, I want 350 safe, conscientious, trained gun owners. That's a big part of what made the station what it is and kept it free. I want you to be a part of that, and I don't want you to give the anti-gunner any help ever with stupidity, with lack of safety, and with moronic statements and actions. The big problem with the people that talk about war all the time and live in the Red Dawn fantasy land is you give ammunition to the anti-gunner. The people that are unsafe give ammunition to the anti-gunner. The safe Rational, capable, trained rifleman is America's freedom keeper. As much as the soldier. The soldier is often sent to a foreign land to fight for somebody else's freedom. And if called upon, they will come home and they will fight for freedom here. The rifleman is already here and waiting. If ever called upon, most of us would defend this nation if it was ever invaded. And we'll definitely defend our home and our property from invasion by criminals. It's a big part of what makes this nation one of the greatest nations ever conceived of in the history of the world. And I don't think it's arrogant for us to believe that. If somebody thinks that's arrogant, tell me where else even with everything that our government has screwed up for us, tell me where else in the world today you have the opportunities to achieve, succeed, and dream that you do in America. And the protection and freedom of firearm ownership so that you can defend what you have yourself without waiting for authorities to respond when they get there in minutes at a time when seconds count. This is the only place. I want it kept that way. And we keep this right by exercising. So I want to encourage you, if you are not a firearms owner, to take the steps to get trained and become a responsible owner of firearms. I want you to take the steps to train your children to respect, understand, 
and know what a gun is. Trained children don't go into daddy's nightstand and get his gun by accident where your gun doesn't belong in the first place. Do things the right way. Teach your children. You teach children to shoot, it empowers them, and it makes them more successful in life, even if they don't become lifelong shooters. If you want to convert somebody who is against gun ownership to a person that is pro-gun owner, take them to the range and teach them to shoot. Show them the empowerment that it gives, the liberty it gives, and the freedom that it gives. And with that, I am done for today. I hope to see three of you, and hopefully a lot more people that have already decided to go on their own at Dirt Time 2010 in Wyoming. I hope you uh, took the opportunity to play that game today. hope you won. hope you subscribed to our YouTube channel. And above all, I hope you get a lot out of the Survival Podcast. I hope you understand how committed I am to helping make America all that it used to be, and more importantly, all that it can be. If we as Americans understand the duties and honors that are our responsibility, chief among them is safe, responsible ownership of firearms. This has been Jack Spierko with another edition of the Survival Podcast, helping you figure out how to live that better life. Times get tough, or even if they don't. You can scream, and you can holler, it really doesn't matter, cause it all gets spent.